The vast majority of claims made about males versus female brains are strongly related to gender stereotypes. We are having that experience because we have been brought up to expect it. Simply because we are female does not mean that a hormone is the sole provider of an emotion. Overabundance of cells and connections and synapses, and that's all kind of there to be then refined and sculpted by life itself. The strongest predictor for a woman's emotional state was how socially supported she felt. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Today's episode is a fascinating deep dive into the female brain, which as we'll learn, (laughs) may not be that different from the male brain. I personally learned so much about the brain with Dr. Sarah Mackay's book, and honestly, it created a huge paradigm shift for me. To learn what that paradigm shift involved, you'll have to listen to the episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash women's brain. I do have a sort of exciting announcement. So I know I'm sort of late to the game, but I decided to try to be more active on Instagram. I've sort of been really shy about Instagram because I'm actually a very introverted person. I'm not very good with like selfies and all of that stuff. So Instagram, I find very intimidating, like very intimidating. Kind of like in high school when there's the popular table in the cafeteria and you're scared to go over there. That's, that's the way I feel about Instagram. But I've decided to get over that because people are always asking me about my favorite products and they want to see all the biohacking stuff and all the stuff. So guys, I'm going to try, I'm really going to try to start posting more on Instagram. I'll be sharing all the biohacking stuff I like, things in my daily life, the musings. I'm going to try. We'll see. But anyways, you can follow me at Melanie Avalon, and I would love to hear your thoughts on everything, and we can talk more there. I am a Himalaya Partners show, and if you follow the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance, so definitely check that out. Also, please join me in my Facebook community that is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. We discuss so many things there. Whatever you like, biohacking, skincare, women's brains, the weather, honestly anything, I would love to see you there. All right, now enjoy the show. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. So I am super excited to be here today with, and this is the last time you're going to hear me call her this, but <laughs> Dr. Sarah Mackay, who I will be calling Sarah. We've been talking before the call. Dr. Mackay is Absolutely amazing. She is a neuroscientist and a science communicator, and she specializes in translating brain science research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, health, and well-being. So that's the pitch sentence around her. But guys, she has written an amazing book, The Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness. And When I got this book, Sarah, from your agent, I believe, Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. And 
it was amazing. I, I didn't design the cover, so that's maybe what threw you slightly. <laughs> I wanted to call it something different. <laughs> so funny you said that. I was actually going to say, I don't know why, like looking at it, I don't know. I feel like I thought it was going to be one thing, but reading it, it was amazing. Not that the cover is misleading or anything. Yeah, traditional publishing, you don't get a lot of say. <laughs> don't I know about that one? <laughs> but in any case, it's a wonder of a book. I think that's what it is. I think that the, the cover looks very simple and approachable and the book is approachable, but it is so in-depth. There is so much science. There's so much in there. It's absolutely, it's fantastic. And it's fascinating. And all about not just the brain, because we were talking before the call about this, that there's so much research and published work and books on the brain, but specifically women's brains and all the differences and how things like hormones affect the brain and the differences that happen in every stage of life. And I just learned so much in your book, I can't even describe. And so I am so thrilled, so thrilled to have you today on the podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. And that's very nice words that you've used to describe my little book. So thank you very much. Well, I mean it. And it's not just me. I mean, Sarah, you've been all over the place. You've been in the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, TED Talks, ABC, like all the places. So this is not just me saying this, <laughs> but it's all really wonderful things. And listeners may hear your accent. Mm -hmm. So I just learned Sarah grew up in New Zealand. She currently lives in Australia. And I also learned a lot of things about Scottish versus Irish and the differences. And <laughs> I was laughing because she said that us non... See, I don't even know what to call you. Like non-Irish, Scottish, New Zealand. Non-Americans. Non-Americans. <laughs> the rest of the world. <laughs> We all kind of lump it all together. And I know it's like not even the same thing. And you were saying it's kind of like people saying that Canada and the US would be the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New Zealand and Australia are very, very different. Yeah. We have an amazing prime minister in New Zealand and she is very different from the gentleman that we have here in Australia. Let me just summarize it like that. But there's plenty of differences, but you know, both countries have their strong points. And anyway, I live here in Australia at the moment and it's a bit of an unfortunate time to be here because it really does feel like the climate emergency Armageddon has descended upon us with um, we're having a dreadful bushfire season already and we're only just a few days into summer and all we have is smoke haze over Sydney so it does make me miss New Zealand and the clean fresh air there so well thank you for being here with me despite all the environmental craziness mm. there's so many ways that we could go with this conversation we were talking before the call about what all to go into but I thought just to start things off would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your own personal health history? What made you so fascinated in the brain? What led you to where you are today? Oh, wow. I've never really thought about it in terms of my personal health history before. That's an interesting one. Look, I, I was one of these kids that grew up with, I was always, always, always really interested in human biology. And I did not grow up in a very academic family. My parents both left school at 15. And I just had this real love of learning and, and in particular about human biology. And there were a few nurses in my extended family. And I remember just being very interested in nursing textbooks because it, you know, there's all these interesting pictures and things to read and, and to learn and understand. So I, I always had a, had a long-standing interest in human biology and health. In terms of my personal health history, I mean, I think I've had a pretty, a pretty good ride. I did grow up with a, you know, in New Zealand, great outdoors, spent all my time outside growing up, very active, pretty 
simple meat and three veggies diet. So I'm incredibly fortunate to have grown up with that very down-to-earth, healthy, basic outdoor life. I mean, I suppose in terms of diet, you know, when you head off to university and you discover alcohol and boys and takeaway food, we all kind of, you know, wallow around in that world for a little while. Never really kind of thought too much about diet. And I guess once you start, I had kids, I've got two boys who are now 10 and 11 and a half And, you know, you kind of have to get back to basics again when you have kids and think about food and diet. But honestly, I've never really thought a lot about what I eat because I think I was brought up with such a basic whole foods, healthy diet, but it was never talked about like that. That was just what everyone in New Zealand ate. Fish on Fridays, maybe takeaways once a week if we were really lucky, but there wasn't many takeaways growing up in New Zealand back in the 80s. And I suppose more recently, I have become a whole lot more aware about the food I eat. I'm in my mid-40s, so, you know, it's it's harder to stay healthier. You're not healthy by default. You do have to kind of take a little bit of care of your lifestyle. I've really, really, really in the last few years in the whole family, we've not completely eliminated because I don't ever go hardcore on anything, but we don't really eat a lot of red meat anymore. The main reason for that's rather interesting. One of my oldest sons got bitten by a tick. And here in the Northern Beaches of Sydney, where I live, we have this unusual phenomenon whereby some people are getting bitten by ticks and it causes a mammalian meat allergy. Didn't eat any red meat for a couple of years because he couldn't. His The allergy has now abated. I believe that there's somewhere else in the US somewhere in Virginia in the mountains or something where people are having the same response. So it was a really healthy allergy to get and made us feel a little bit smug, quite frankly, because, you know, it's the the kind of the green option, the way to go right now. So much better for the planet, better for our health. So in terms of thinking about diet, I had to just be a bit more creative in what I fed my family. But I try not to think too much about what I eat, but I eat you know, salads for lunch and I eat oats for breakfast and I eat fish, maybe sometimes chicken and vegetables or salad for dinner. So I think my diet is pretty good. The perhaps one downfall is too much red wine. But, you know, that's my that's my little shortcut to stress relief. So many thoughts. Well, first of all, I didn't mean to imply that had to be diet related. I guess I meant more like body-mind connection, sense of wholeness. Was that at all related to your interest in the brain? My interest in the brain was just very academic. In my first year of university, I was kind of doing a sort of a biomedical pre-med, pre-dent, pre-pharmacy type first year at uni. I was doing a psychology lecture and became very interested in kind of the biology of psychology and never really come across this idea of the brain or neuroscience. And I read this book by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks, who some people may have heard of, who wrote this amazing book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And really it was exploring different strange behaviors and ways of thinking and being and feeling that people experience depending on what was kind of happening in their brain, if they had some kind of brain disorder or disease or brain damage. And I was so fascinated and captivated by understanding the brain in that way. There was a brand new degree discipline at Otago University in Dunedin where I headed off to and that was really the first year that discipline of neuroscience had kind of come together from the departments of physiology and anatomy and psychology and psychiatry. And so that was really, and it has always remained for me a very kind of intellectual pursuit. I just think it's really interesting and more so it's that that excites me and interests me. What I do now for my business is 
try to take that information that we have from the world of research, from the lab, and help people apply that to their lives. But I mean, to be perfectly honest and quite selfishly, it really is for me just the the kind of the intellectual excitement that comes from this sort of trying to delve into this enormously broad and deep world of neuroscience. Just really interested in it. No, I, I love that. Yeah, and in terms of kind of mind, body, health kind of connections, I suppose I've become more interested in that over the years because people have asked me a lot of questions about it. And I've got some pretty strong beliefs about, based on science, based on the evidence on kind of what we can apply and what we can't apply from neuroscience because it's become this real sort of seductive allure of talking about neuroscience these days. And there's a lot of people out there talking neuroscience who have quite frankly, no training in the subject. And I think we need to recognise where the gaps still lie and what we can and what we can't make meaning of from that research too. I think that's such an important point and perspective to have. And something that I really, really took away from your book was I felt very, very trusting in your perspective that you are really going in and you know, finding what do we know? What do we not know? How should we evaluate data? What should we be looking for in these studies and these findings? And that was something I I really appreciated. So to start things off, because I would love to get into the female brain specifically, but just for listeners, can you start with a general overview of the brain, specifically the structure and function of the brain? So the lobes and the hemispheres and just the basic, how the brain processes information. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's like 20 years of study and research to try and explain that. I'm not even sure whether you can kind of summarize the structure and the function of the brain because it's incredibly complex, this organ that lives inside our head and it's, I like to kind of think about the brain as, you know, it was this organ that evolved in our head to be constantly monitoring and communicating with our bottom-up biology, what's going on in our body. It's continually sensing and reading signals from our entire nervous system and all of our, our body. It's kind of evolved to help move us through the world and to connect with the outside world, whether that be you know, nature, we evolved in this, you know, in the forests with this light dark cycle on this planet that sort of spins on its axis rotating around the sun. And we evolved in tribes of people. So our brain is there to be continually sort of sensing and engaging with the world around us. And the world around us kind of gets in through our senses, through our eyes, our ears, our skin, the food we eat. So the outside world kind of gets in under our skin via our brain, via our nervous system. And then we also have this kind of more harder because like a slippery ball to kind of hold these processes that emerge from the brain doing what the brain does our thoughts and our feelings and our mindsets and our beliefs and all of these bottom up and outside in and top down factors sculpt our brain through our lives and in turn our brain influences you know how our body works our thoughts and our feelings and also how we interact with the world we've got kind of then take the next step and try to start breaking that down into different structures in the brain I mean for many years we had a very strong tendency to say this part of the brain does that and that was simply because we didn't have technology to measure it in any other way we really for many many kind of years could only determine which part of the brain did what by looking at what happened when a certain part of the brain was injured. When someone had a maybe a traumatic brain injury or a tumour in a specific part of the brain, we could see what functions had been lost and we therefore assumed that function was in that spot. Now, that still is the case 
for some aspects of what the brain manages, you know, as a part of the brain which controls the movement of your right hand, for example, and there is another part of your brain which is involved with processing the things that you see and another part of the brain which is involved with processing the sounds that you hear. But when we move on to, you know, our thoughts, perhaps the stories that we may be telling ourselves in our mind when we're just kind of drifting off or doing things like paying attention or perhaps doing mathematical tasks in our mind, trying to solve a mathematical problem, there's not really any specific part of the brain that does that. We're kind of moving now, I guess, in neuroscience to talking about networks and nodes and the brain kind of does what it does via networks. But we do have a very strong tendency to describe the brain using the current best language that we have, which is often based on the the kind of the technology that we're using at the time. So I suspect perhaps we're just talking about brain networks at the moment because we live in the world of the internet. I think that's perhaps as far as I can go with trying to sort of describe and summarise the brain because it's incredibly complex. I said we've barely scratched the surface of the cortex and I've been thinking about this object for 25 years and I'm kind of stumped right now when you say, can you explain how the brain works? That's a fantastic foundation. I think you brilliantly, brilliantly summed it up if it could be summed up. I actually have a question. I didn't anticipate going this way, but hearing you say all of that, so having done all of your research and all of the study on the brain and what you were just talking about with the difference between like the spatial locations, with all of your vast knowledge, which I guess is almost ironic because it's all coming from the brain, but the sense of self and consciousness and a person's identity and being with all of this that you've seen, do you feel like it surpasses any one location in the brain? Do you feel like it even resides in the brain? What are your thoughts on that? Consciousness is called the hard problem for a reason because it's really hard to try and figure out. And I mean, people have been trying to define what consciousness is for, you know, back since Aristotle and Plato and those dudes back thousands and thousands (laughs) of years ago. And I think, you know, many people try to define consciousness and self now, again, I guess, using their own current belief systems and knowledge. And it's a weird thing and it's a hard problem because we are kind of using the tool itself to try and understand the tool, the brain and the mind is trying to explain the brain and the mind. And, and, you know, some people might say perhaps we're not evolved enough to be able to understand ourselves yet. I really come from the very neurobiological school of thought that the mind is what the brain does and consciousness is kind of what is in our attention at that time. And there's this lovely analogy called the theatre of consciousness that for me as a neuroscientist really resonates that you think you've kind of got a theatre and a stage and you have different scenes or different characters kind of coming on stage in the spotlight at any particular point in time. And that's really what you're paying attention to. It could be something in the outside world. It could be a bird you've just seen flowing past or it could be a phone rings and catches your attention or it could be perhaps a memory or a thought or you know a sensation that kind of comes on stage now if you've ever done any work in theatre or gone to a theatre you'd know there's an awful lot going on in the wings and backstage that sometimes you may never ever see but different characters may come on and off at different times perhaps prompted by a director or perhaps just randomly arriving on stage so you know we've got this People talk about the unconscious or the subconscious mind as if it's some kind of mystical place that if we could only tap into and understand, we could solve all of our own problems. Whereas really, it's just 
what we're not paying attention to at that time. And there's a ton of stuff that our brain does that we really, quite frankly, do not need to be thinking about at all. I don't really need to be monitoring my blood glucose levels. My brain's doing that. I don't need to be thinking about gut motility. I don't really need to be thinking about hormone release. The brain can manage all of that, and that can be part of the subconscious way out the backstage, kind of really far backstage. So I just tend to think of consciousness as being what is kind of currently in the spotlight of our attention at any one time. Now, when we go into a deep sleep, we lose consciousness. When we're deeply anaesthetized, we lose consciousness. There's not really anything on stage. If we suffer a severe brain injury, we lose consciousness and may never ever recover again. So we have pretty clear neurobiological evidence that when you change how the brain is working, you are able to change that state of consciousness. And I think for me that that's pretty clear evidence that consciousness emerges from the brain there may be a school of thought, not mine, that consciousness is something out there in the universe and the brain is kind of the machine that is able to receive information rather like we have light and the retina of the eye can pick up light. Light is there regardless of whether there's a retina. Some people might think consciousness is there regardless of whether there's a brain. I don't believe that. But that's a prerequisite, I guess, for living a life after death and spirituality. And, And I guess that's why conversations of consciousness get really convoluted because people are coming at it with their specific belief systems and knowledge and experiences and it's something we all experience and something that we're trying to use to explain the problem. But look, quite frankly, most of it's completely speculative and we really don't understand yet how it works. So I'm happy to use a neurobiological model to explain it. Like I said, it's called the hard problem for a good reason. I have so many follow-up questions, but I feel like I should stop myself. We can do another podcast another day. Do you have a podcast yourself? No, I don't. I'm quite lazy. And I kind of think, oh, I don't know. I quite like talking at people. So a podcast would probably suit me quite well. Um, But I haven't got around to that yet. No. I just listen to them. I I devour podcasts. You know how you have that thing on your mobile phone that tells you how many hours a day you've been using the phone? Mm -hmm. Mine's always outrageous because I listen to podcasts all day. It's saying I spent so many hours because it classifies podcasts as social media, I think. Yeah. I'm like, I wasn't on Facebook. I was listening to (laughs) podcasts. Coming back to the matter at hand, oh, I got to stop myself from saying no pun intended. I didn't realize how many times I say things like pick your brain or matter or what are your thoughts on this? So please ignore <laughs> all puns that happen in this podcast. I'm just realizing now how much we've integrated the concept of the brain into our conversational language and our perspective of the world. In any case, with all of that that you just said, going deeper into the setup of the brain Is there a vast difference between the male and female brain or what are some of the common misconceptions or also what might be correct in common perspectives of how the male brain is different from the female brain? I know one of the biggest ones is people will say women's brains, the two hemispheres are connected differently. So we're better at multitasking. I know that I feel like that's one of the... That just gives people an excuse to tell us to do more housework. The vast majority of claims made about males versus female brains are strongly related to gender stereotypes. So we'll just put that out there at the front. But when I said I was writing, it was interesting when I started writing my book and I was just really interested in writing a book about, you know, puberty and periods and pregnancy and the pill, just taking a look at women's health issues from the perspective of neurobiology, because I'd never before considered those in my entire career as a neuroscientist because I say it's a really broad, deep field and those questions had never occurred to me. 
When I started saying I'm writing a book about the female brain, I wanted to call it In Her Head, not the woman's brain book. But the question people would always ask me was, what is the difference between the male and female brain? And it was a bit frustrating because I'm writing a book about the pill and pregnancy. What are men got to do with it? But I mean, people really love this idea that all women have a female brain and all men have a male brain. And we can kind of, we had a room of a hundred men and women and we could sort of split them up into the pink side and the blue side based on what their brain structure and their brain function is like. And, you know, women have these emotional brains that can't read maps and they can multitask and they prefer people to things and we don't ask for promotions and men, you know, can't read emotions and are geniuses and get all the good jobs in the workplace. And and those gender stereotypical differences come about because of our brains. And what's really interesting is we just simply cannot divide a room neatly in half based on the anatomy or the functioning of different parts of the brain in the same way we could if we were to, you know, get everyone to drop their pants and have a look at what was down there. One way to kind of think about it is to think about other parts of the male and female body. And the biggest difference that we see in males and females apart from our genitalia and perhaps men being slightly hairier is height. So you could probably maybe divide a room in half based on height, but you can pretty much get a sense straight away that you're not going to be able to divide a room into men on one side and women on the other based on height because lots of women are taller than lots of men, but the strongest sort of difference that we would see statistically between male and female bodies is height. And already you can see that the differences there are going to be blurred. The averages are always going to to overlap. So instead we have to be thinking about our brains. The current kind of concept where a lot of the research is pointing towards is this idea that we have a mosaic brain. And much like our behavior and our personalities and our likes and our habits, our brain features are made up of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of differences. And they're not all pink and women and all blue and others, but they're assembled of hundreds of little pieces that are colored every sort of shade of pink and blue and violet and indigo and purple. And some women have brains that may be more slightly pink tinged and some men have brains that may be more blue tinged But almost all of us have brains that are a complete mosaic of indigo glow and blue and violet and mauve and bright pink and hot pink and dark blue and navy. And that's really how we have to be thinking about it. They're a complete mix of masculine and feminine. And if we start to do what scientists do, which is we start to ask very, very, very careful questions about which is the specific sex difference or gender difference that we're interested in looking at, how different is that difference? And when it comes down to it, there are very, very, very few anatomical differences. There's no like kind of great sex difference between the brains of men and women in terms, except in terms of maybe size, but that's because men on average have slightly bigger bodies than women, so their brains are slightly bigger, but it doesn't mean that they use them in any different way. Their hands might be slightly bigger, but it doesn't really mean that they're better at using their hands for anything except maybe got a stronger grip or something like that. So we really need to start asking much more sophisticated questions about how different are the differences and what is the specific difference we're interested in exploring in this some really interesting sort of statistical analysis that has been done around teasing out how how different are the differences. What I was really interested in was when I started exploring the book, was people were always asking me this, people seem to be coming at this question with the assumption that if there was a difference, it was kind of 
entirely biological and innate. It was a sex difference and it was determined from, you know, genes and it was determined that way in the womb, which completely flies in the face of everything that we know about the brain being plastic and what happens, you know, the moment children are born, they're born into a gendered world. I know your part of the world, they're really interested in these sort of gender reveal parties, which I think are just utterly ridiculous. <laughs> so children are born into this kind of gendered world. You are a boy and you are a girl and willingly or not by the parents raised to sort of think and feel and behave. And every experience we have sculpts the brain. And that's where we can start thinking about if we do see differences emerging in behavior, often those are learned. They are gender differences, not biological sex differences. So it's been really interesting taking a look at that. And throughout the book, there were times when I thought, well, you know, I went in to have a look at, you know, do women have any cognitive differences at different times of the month that may be influenced by our hormones? And then even if we go and look at all the very careful studies that have been done looking at women's cognitive capacity and compare a group of women to a group of men, there are utterly no cognitive differences between males and females. The strongest one that we do see happens to be the ability of men to rotate a 3D object in their mind's eye. The average man is better than the average woman, but the difference is sort of similar to height and that there's plenty of women that are really good at it and plenty of men that are hopeless at it, just like there's some really tall men and some short women and really tall women and short men. So again, it is simply impossible to look at any specific function of the brain or any specific region of the brain and say that is pink and that is blue and they are entirely separate. There are a couple of really small areas of the brain which do have very, very different roles. For example, women have a part of their brain in their hypothalamus, a very deep down part of the brain, that's involved in regulating ovulation. Clearly men do not have a circuit for ovulation in their brain. But when we take a look at, you know, the parts of the brain involved with processing sound or vision or thinking or reasoning or maths or anything like that, typically the average differences are so, so small. We see far more similarity then we do difference, much like we do when we start looking at our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviours and our habits and our likes and our dislikes. Wow. So it seems like actual biology of the brain is not a pivotal factor in the difference in the male versus female, I guess, experience or how that manifests in culture today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's what's key is we have different experiences, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily come about because our brains are wired differently from birth because they're not really at all. So what portion of the female versus male experience, because you spoke to the biology of the brain as well as, you know, cultural stereotypes and how that influences things. What about the role of hormones in the female body? Mm. How much does that affect the female identity as a female. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting because, of course, we have these very different experiences in our lives which are due to, you know, our capacity to reproduce as women and to carry a baby. So we can look at different sort of hormonal reproductive transitions. And that was what I was really interested in doing in the book was, and the book really kind of takes a womb to tomb lifespan, look at what happens during when the brain's sort of developing 
in utero, during childhood. And some really interesting studies, I think, might sort of shed a bit of light on that. So one study I was really interested in was looking at very young children in terms of the experiences boys and the experiences that girls have. And we'd all be very familiar with this kind of Sheryl Sandberg lean-in concept now, which I suppose is kind of a few years old now. But this idea that men are very self-confident and put their hand up for everything and women are less likely to do so, although I never really felt feel like I have a problem putting my hand up. And if we look at this kind of, we would call it male hubris, this kind of super self-confidence, when does that emerge? And it turns out it emerges very, very early in childhood development. So there was a study that was published in Science the journal Science, which is absolute top flight academic research journal. And it was looking at the experiences of little boys and little girls in the classroom in the first year or so of being in primary school or elementary school, you call it, at around ages five and six. And, and the researchers went in and they would say that the class of boys and girls, who here wants to play a game designed for really, really smart people? And all the little girls would put their hand up and all the little boys would put their hand up. And then they might say, tell them a story about an amazing inventor or scientist who's, you know, saving the planet from climate disaster or something. They'd say, now, do you think that that you could grow up to be like that scientist? And the little girls would go, yeah. And the little boys would go, yeah. And then they went in and looked at children who are a year or two older, who are around sort of ages seven, eight. And what they found was, who wants to play the game designed for really, really smart kids? And all the little boys would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the little girls would go, oh, yeah, that's the game for the boys. And similarly, who wants to grow up to be the famous inventor or scientist that saves the planet? The boys would go, oh, I do. And the girls would go, oh, that's what the boys will do when they grow up. And there's no hormonal change that happens between ages sort of five and six and seven. These children are starting to develop these completely different perceptions about themselves and their capabilities and who they are. And that's got nothing to do with hormones. There's nothing going on there and little girls' ovaries and little boys' testes at that point in life. Now, I don't know what the answer is. I don't think the answer is don't educate children. This is what happens when they go to school. But I just think it is such a interesting insight into how powerful people are, you know, the, the world around us and the messages children are picking up and learning and taking on board. And then those boys will be the ones putting their hands up all the way through adulthood. And it's the girls who are defaulting to the boys do the smart stuff and we don't. And so, you know, right away we can see that that's not hormonal. The next kind of, I guess, point in the lifespan when hormones do really sort of, you know, start to be a louder voice in the crowd. And I'm really fond of using that term. And I introduced the idea at the beginning of this podcast about our brains are getting, you know, constantly monitoring, receiving signals and sending signals back out to our biology, the outside and world and our top down thoughts and feelings. And hormones are just one little voice coming from the bottom up. And we see when children into puberty. And that's when we start, you know, the girls start releasing estrogen and progesterone from their ovaries and the boys start producing testosterone from their testes. And obviously there are quite significant physical changes that take place, but children are also moving from primary school to high school or elementary into middle school and high school. You know, there's a whole lot of changes taking place in their brains and their body and their social structures. They're moving from being embedded in families to kind of starting to think that their friends are far more important. So there's a lot of changes taking place. We have a real strong tendency to blame a lot of the negative emotional shifts that we see at this point in the lifespan 
to hormones. So there was one fascinating study that was looking at the emergence of anxiety and depression in young people when they entered puberty. And what we tend to see is that kids are usually pretty resilient through childhood. And then when they enter puberty, they're far more likely to develop mental health problems. And girls are far more likely to develop the anxieties and depressions and boys have different kinds of They still get anxious and depressed, absolutely, but they're less likely to be diagnosed with that. They may develop, you know, anger issues or or, or something else. And again, talking about average populations here, but if you look at a little girl who enters puberty, say early but normal, maybe she starts growing breasts or gets her period, maybe say nine, ten, she's not, you know, pathologically early, just early but normal earlier than all of her friends, she is far more vulnerable to go on to develop emotional and mental health issues than the little girl who starts developing at the same age as her friends or slightly later than her friends. But what's really interesting is if you look at what happens to little boys, if a young boy starts developing much earlier than his friends, what happens when testosterone hits? He gets taller, hairier, musclier, his voice deepens and he rises in social stature within his friendship group, and he's then protected against developing those kind of emotional problems of adolescence versus that little guy, and we all remember that little guy from the class who developed much later than everyone else. When he hits puberty at 15 or 16, he is far more vulnerable to develop mental health problems than the kid who entered puberty much earlier. So we've got these four kids here who have entered puberty at different points in time all experiencing that same surge of hormones, it's having the same effect on their bodies, it's having the same effect on kick-starting teenage brain development, but children's experiences depend on the social context in which those changes are occurring. So we've got these bottom-up biological changes kick-started by hormones, but children's emotional experience depend on the outside and world, their thoughts and their feelings and how they fit in with their peer group. That is a louder voice in the crowd than the hormones. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. 
Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Okay. That is really fascinating. And how does that relate then? Because something that you talked about in your book was 
this critical period of adolescence. Mm, yeah. A time when the brain was most likely to learn and when the identity was shaped. Mm-hmm. It sounded like there was an opening and a closing of a door almost around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're pretty familiar with these ideas of critical periods or sensitive periods of development in early childhood. You know, children must be spoken to and learn language before about the age of 18 months or two years, or it's very, very hard for them to develop speech and language later. They can, but it is much harder. It just doesn't happen naturally. So children who are born profoundly deaf and it's not picked up really, really struggle with language and development, you know, throughout the lifespan. We kind of understand those critical periods of development. And what we see was when children enter puberty, and on average girls start a year or so before boys, the girls sort of shoot up before the little guys do, and that kickstarts adolescent brain development and that's this absolutely critical period of brain development the brain is growing and changing all the way through childhood but what we see is a lot of the connections become incredibly refined and streamlined when we go through adolescence now interestingly if we look at the kind of the frontal lobes of the brain the prefrontal cortex some of you listeners may be familiar with that that's that part of the brain that's involved in things like judgment and reasoning and planning emotional regulation and also social cognition so really important kind of grown up adult functions of you know just kind of being an adult and we develop those skills as we're going through adolescence and what we understand now is that that part of the brain that is involved with managing those functions is going through this exquisite period of brain development and it's incredibly sensitive to the experiences that it has it's what we call experience dependent plasticity because the brain is being wired up based on the experiences that it has so while we may think of all young people are really overly emotional and they can't control their emotions. They're going through a period of brain development where they're learning, they're at the prime point in time to learn how to thoughtfully manage their emotions. Now we see, you know, I kind of mentioned before, you have kids and I have an 11 and a half year old son and he would much rather hang out with his herd of boys roaming the suburb on their bikes than he would have anything to do with mum and dad, which is a completely normal phase of development. And it's, his, his brain is also about to enter that phase of development where social cognition, the ability to think about the thoughts and the feelings of other people is going through this very, very sensitive phase of development. And it requires social engagement and the right kinds of social connections and engagement with other people to wire it up in the right way. So the experiences that we have during this point in time are incredibly important to develop the brain kind of in in the right way, so to speak. Now, this brain development is kind of kick-started by the hormones of adolescence. It kind of opens up this period of refinement. I think what's really interesting is the prefrontal cortex has got the grey matter, the kind of wrinkly grey outer layer of the brain that you would see if you were looking at it from the outside. It's going through um, adolescence, it actually gets thinner, it gets narrower and people freak out when they hear that because they think it means the brain's degenerating during the teenage years, but it's not, it's streamlining. It's getting much better at doing what it does. It's getting rid of all of the superfluous connections that it's grown, that it doesn't need and it's refining and it's pruning away what it doesn't need. And so that's why the experiences that young people have during this point in time lovely coincidence that happened to be at high school, you know, peak time of learning about self and development and, you know, learning cognitive skills, learning about judgment and reasoning and problem solving and maths and history. All of these experiences are helping to prune away what it doesn't need and refine those connections. And, and then that kind of 
period of development, almost kind of that sensitive period kind of closes down once you sort of enter your early to mid-20s. And then the brain really doesn't change in structure much more until if unfortunately you live long enough that you develop some degenerative disease. Although there is another point in the lifespan in women where it does, during pregnancy, it does change its structure slightly. Yeah, that was one of the things I was fascinated by was your discussion about how even when we're born, that half of our cells that we're born with in the brain are pre-programmed to die. Yeah, well, that happens prenatally, yeah, before you're born. So the brain is is very good at kind of, it's almost as if you imagine you're kind of growing a, you know, one of those big kind of hedges in your garden that you want to then sculpt and refine and prune into it so it looks like a, a swan or a reindeer or something. And you're kind of getting rid of all of the bits that you don't need. The brain is very, very good at this kind of an overabundance of cells and connections and synapses. And that's all kind of there to be then refined and sculpted by life itself. That kind of gives us that capacity for that that huge diversity in terms of the you know the different kinds of people that there are out there in the world. So things like anxiety or rumination, or I guess we qualify them as mental health issues that people experience. And you do mention in the book that negative self talk, even that women often experience that more than men. How does that relate to the whole the brain, you know, pruning cells, or does it even relate? I guess these things that seem to not be serving us, but maybe they have an evolutionary, you know, purpose to them. Yeah, that's interesting. In adolescence and and a lot of these sort of life transitions that we go through, the brain goes through these very sensitive phases of development. You know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because if you think of a young child raised, you know, with a loving, warm, nurturing family, great education, kind of giving, you know, it's kind of guided through life and giving everything that it needs versus a child who perhaps grows up with extreme poverty or trauma. Plastic brains are great things if, you know, the situation and the environment in which, you know, it is in is healthy and nurturing. So that's, you know, where issues such as, you know, trauma or poverty or, you know, just living in a family that perhaps didn't give you everything that you needed can cause problems. So when we see young people going through their teenage years and adolescence, that is this period of time where, as I said, one of the skills that you're learning is the capacity to regulate your own emotions. You're learning to recognize other people have thoughts and feelings that are different from yours. We develop this exquisite sensitivity to the imaginary crowd when we're going through adolescence and that we think everyone else is looking at what we're doing and is judging us, whereas all teenagers are so busy thinking that everyone else is thinking about them. That really, all, They're just all thinking about themselves. So that imaginary audience, the development of that is a very normal part of adolescence. What happens is when children aren't, learning or you know aren't given the skills or the knowledge or the right environment in which to learn how to regulate emotions how to think about what other people are thinking and feeling how to stand back from your own thoughts and be you know kind of reframe the thoughts that you may be having and those are sort of skills that we really need to learn they kind of develop naturally but we really need them to be modelled and taught to us in the right way. And if you haven't learned those skills, then it's that much harder for you to not be able to manage them later in life. And that's what we see with these kind of critical periods of development. It can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Kind of tying into that as far as like brain feelings and things that might seem like, quote, issues. So I guess women listening now might be thinking, okay, so there's not that much of a difference between you know the male versus female brain. So why as a female do I seem to be experiencing all these intense, you know, 
emotional swings, hormonal changes. Is that experience from society? I think that little boys and little girls experience very, very strong and intense emotions. And I have two boys and they are entirely different in terms of their emotional makeup and in terms of one of them we often say his external sort of representation of his emotions is the same as what he must be actually feeling inside. Gosh, it must be like living in an emotional roller coaster inside his little body and mind. Whereas my other guy is just sort of very emotionally stable. He's very stoic. He's very together. And they are entirely different. And so we we simply can't say, well, girls are highly emotional and boys are stoic and not because we all have emotional feelings. We're just socialized to express them very, very differently. Little girl, and there's some evidence that I talk about in the book where mothers are far more likely to use a wider range of emotional words when they're describing emotions and talking about emotions and feelings to little girls, to their daughters, than they are to their sons. So guys grow up then with a far narrower range of emotional valence to kind of choose from because the language that we are taught to describe how we're feeling influences the emotions that we then go on to experience. Whereas girls have this far wider valence of emotions that we feel comfortable and socialized to experience and to express. So I don't think that we inside are feeling any differently. We're just, we're told we're kind of on this, women are on this kind of crazy hormonal roller coaster that we can't get off and that our hormones are, you know, the loudest voice in the crowd and determining how we think and how we feel. And the evidence doesn't stack up to show that. So I was really interested in digging into that idea when I was writing the chapter on the menstrual cycle because I thought, well, hey, we've all got this kind of monthly neuroscience experiment. Those of us who, you know, between puberty and menopause aren't pregnant and aren't on some kind of hormonal contraceptive, we've got kind of a monthly neuroscience experiment going on. So do our hormones completely define how we think and how we feel? And so I went and looked at some very careful studies that were done in various aspects of cognition. So this is what we might talk about thinking. And there was absolutely no evidence to show that women had any difference in their cognitive capacity, their ability to think or plan or reason or add up numbers or have verbal memory recall at any different point in the menstrual cycle. So hormones played no role in that, which is kind of good because that means, you know, whether you've got your period or not or whatever, you can have a great career and, you know, that's not going to influence your ability to function in the, you know, in, in the workplace. So I was quite happy with that, with that finding. And I thought, well, surely emotions are going to be very different. Emotions are going to be strongly impacted at different times in the month by our hormonal status because we're told that. We're told that women are these hysterical hormonal creatures and that hormones are the things that drive our emotions. Although I've just described the findings around kind of emotional turmoil and puberty, the loudest voice in the crowd wasn't hormones, it was other people. And when I went and looked at the very careful studies that were done of specific aspects of measures of emotion that cognitive psychologists would do, so looking at how empathy might change over the, say, menstrual cycle or, or other aspects of you know, emotional recall, but there wasn't really any evidence out there showing that it was influenced by hormonal status, whether that be time of the month or not. So I thought, oh, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go and have a look at PMS because that's this thing, right? Premenstrual syndrome or PMT, whatever we call it, this kind of emotional anger, this irritability, this hysteria that a woman have in this week or so before their periods. There must be evidence for that. 
I came across a, a meta-analysis, which your listeners may know is kind of pulls together lots of different scientific research papers on the same topic and kind of pulls all that data together and there's more power, greater numbers, more power in that. And it was really interesting because it was looking at women's experience of PMS in different countries around the world. And it turned out that it varied hugely depending on what country you lived in. So interestingly, if you went to France or Switzerland and said to the woman there, who here experiences PMS symptoms? And in particular, they were looking at the emotional symptoms of PMS, not just sore boobs. And about 10 to 15% of women in France and Switzerland put their hand up and say, yep, I suffer from PMS. Well, global average was about 50%. And then you went all the way over to Iran, interestingly, how many women there? 95% of women. So somewhere between 10 and 15 and 95% of women are experiencing PMS, feeling irritable before their period. But it depends where you live in the world. It depends on the, the society or the, the country in which you have been brought up. So I thought, huh, well, it can't be hormones, solely hormones, because they don't vary that much by your country of birth or the, the culture in which you're raised. So there's a woman's health psychiatrist in New Zealand called Sarah Romans. And she was also really interested in this topic. So I've looked at her research and spent time with her chatting to her on the phone. And she was getting a lot of women coming into her psychiatry practice. And obviously she sees a very narrow range of of society, women who have very serious emotional problems because they've gone to see a doctor about them. But she said, I just didn't believe that every single woman coming in the problem was hormones, and they're all defaulting to blaming their reproductive capacity, the fact that they have hormones on their, you know, blaming their emotional state on that. So she designed this incredibly clever study called the Mood and Daily Life Study, and so women had like an app on their phone, popped up every day, and they had to record the day of their cycle, they had to record their emotional state and they were given the same number of positive, neutral and negative emotions to choose from. They weren't just given just negative emotions as if you could have 12 types of sadness, anger, irritability and then just one kind of happy. There were equal positive, negative and neutral emotions to choose from. They also recorded things like physical health, how socially supported they felt and how the kind of, you know, stress levels, you know, how they were kind of feeling about that. And hundreds of women in the study, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of menstrual cycles, the key was the women were not told it was a study on PMS. The women were told it was a study looking mood and daily life. And when all of the data was crunched, and this is lots and lots of women find this, they get very upset with this finding, only 1 in 20 of the women showed any clear mapping between her emotional state and her hormonal state. 19 out of 20 women in the study, their emotions were far more likely to be influenced by non-hormonal factors. So whether how kind of healthy she was feeling, how stressed out she was, but most significantly, the strongest predictor for a woman's emotional state was how socially supported she felt. So I kind of talked to Sarah about this and initially we were kind of joking. She sort of said, oh, you know, so it's, it's not hormones, it's whether their husbands put the bins out or not. But I said, you know, women must really struggle with this because we are told we're all on this hormonal roller coaster and you're going to get PMS and you're going to feel terrible. And it very neatly fits in with the feminist narrative of PMS being a social construct whereby one week a month we're allowed to express these negative emotions we otherwise keep kind of hidden. 
And she said that a big part of what she does is just try and re-educate women around the various multifactorial influences there are on our emotional state and to try and re-educate women away from this default to simply blame hormones. Now, of course, there were one in 20 of the women in the study who did show you know, emotional variation depending on their hormone or the time of the month, which is interesting because if you look at clinical definitions of premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, which is more likely to be seen in women who are suffering from depression, obviously that women, some women are far more vulnerable to the influence of hormones on their hormonal status. There, there were women who were influenced, but by and large, most women were not. And I think that's actually quite good news because it gives us a great sense of agency over our emotional experiences, we're not beholden to our ovaries. You know, it's the outside world. And once again, it was it was people, it was other people. It was a social connection that, that was the greatest influence on, on women's emotional state. And this sort of theme came up, and I went into this book with absolutely no idea, no agenda, just really curious to explore the research. So I was so surprised by this research. A lot of women have kind of, you know, they've been brought up being told hormones will upset you. And there's quite a degree of resistance to this finding. But I think, you know, what good news is that? You know, we've got great, we've got agency over our emotions. We're not riding a hormonal roller coaster. It's a, it's a challenging idea for lots of women, but I think it's a, it's a wonderful one. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying this fascinating interview with Dr. Mackay, aka Sarah. Well, I personally am very, very fascinated by this. So in college, I actually wrote a paper that I won a a scholarship for through the gender studies program at USC, but it was actually analyzing the history of hysteria in women. And my thesis was that the work of Charcot and the Salpetriere in France in the, man, it's been a while since I wrote that, the 1700s, I believe, but double check the dates, but basically that crystallized this idea of the hysterical women and the need for, you know, therapy and medication to address. And it was really complicated um, paper, but, and then I was talking about actually how today I was positing that Lady Gaga was actually, because this was right when she became pretty popular. And I was saying how she was embracing the female hysteria image and taking back the power and kind of breaking these identity gender ideas that we have in society. And I was like analyzing her music video and it was very interesting. But so when I was reading your book, I was loving the part because you did talk about the history of hysteria and women and how that tied to originally they thought it was about the wandering womb in the body. So hearing everything that you just said, at first I was thinking, oh, but there are hormones, like we, we do feel these things. But then I was thinking, would that actually mean that there's a possibility that if somebody feels like they are experiencing, you know, intense hormonal fluctuations, be it due to their cycle or due to maybe some other factor, if they think that it's hormonal related, could it possibly be that in some situations, there's some other factor setting the body off balance, which is also disrupting hormones. And we're blaming the hormones as the problem when really it's some other health issue or something like that? Absolutely. I mean, and our hormones are under the influence of various aspects of our health and our emotions are, and we tend to think emotions are these kind of functions of the brain, I guess, again, that emerge fully formed when we are born. But our contemporary neuroscience understanding of emotions is that we 
we learn how to experience them. They learn, we learn what sensations in our body are. We give words to them and then we kind of categorize them and that becomes happy and that becomes sad. And then we, we learn what that experience feels like going forward. That's very different from having a hardwired emotion that's sort of set from the moment we're born. And we can learn to experience a whole range of new emotions and we can learn to experience bodily sensations and give a different word to them or learn a different story or narrative around them and therefore have a different emotional experience based on, you know, what is happening in our body and based in the, the kind of the context, the world, the environment that we, we are embedded in. So I think we need to be kind of shifting away from this very much. It's this sort of sort of straight line from hormone to emotion to experience. Our brains and our minds are incredibly powerful and we can influence incredibly. And I think if we just look at the different experiences women have with PMS in different parts of the world, they're entirely embedded in these cultural narratives that we have where we can have incredibly powerful emotional experiences because we expect to have them. So I remember sort of saying to my sister, I don't have daughters, but when my niece before she had gone through puberty or before she had her first period, my sister kind of going, oh, well, I know the time of the month must be coming because she's getting cranky. And I'm like, but she doesn't have a menstrual cycle yet. So she can't be getting cranky at a particular time of the month. And again, you are teaching her that she should be expecting negative emotions at this point of the month because of her body and removing any agency than she has over having a different emotional experience at that time of the month. So I talked to Sarah Romans about this and she said it's just very important that we start to be a bit more nuanced and a bit more thoughtful about where our emotional experiences come from than just simply defaulting to, oh, it is our hormones. Of course, in some instances and in some women, that is entirely the case. But for many of us, it is not but we are having that experience because we have been brought up to expect it. So I think that there's some wonderful, you know, this sort of social media landscape that we're in and there's this wonderful period positivity and there's a lot more openness and discussion about that. But there's also quite a prescriptive way of describing our emotional experiences at different times of the month. And if we expect to experience something then we're going to experience that the experience is real but it may be we may have learned or primed ourselves to expect it rather than it being solely driven by something biological so I do think we need to be a bit more skeptical and nuanced and take a bit of agency and control back over our emotional experience um, so I found that incredibly empowering that is a huge paradigm shift. We just, yeah, I think we just need to realize that our brains are not just hormone monitors <laughs> and hormones are, do play a role with shaping our experiences. They shape our physical experiences. They shape our, you know, our social experiences and they do shape our emotional experiences, but they are not the sole provider of an emotional experience. Simply because we are female does not mean that a hormone is the sole provider of an emotion. And the careful studies where women were not primed to think, oh, this is a study on PMS, I'm going to be sad before my period, the other factors came into play when women weren't primed to expect this. And we see, you know, we can look at, you know, studies that have been done of pregnancy, studies that have been done looking at women on the pill or not. A lot of these where we can have clear manipulations or shifts in hormonal status society is telling us that that should map onto an emotional experience and it doesn't necessarily do so, which is good. I think that's great. That means 
in New Zealand, we have a prime minister who could get pregnant and have a baby and manage to run the country almost better than any other country in the world has run. Like, how? What good news that is. We don't all need to be crying into our <laughs> whatever simply because our period is due. I think we need to take more agency over it than that. So what does that imply about things such as hormone replacement therapy or, you know, supplementing with things like progesterone and the effects that women seem to experience from that? Well, it's really interesting because there's a lot of chicken and egg scenarios here. So HRT is different from, say, the contraceptive pill. And there's been not as many studies done on the contraceptive pill as there have been done on HRT. So I would talk about them entirely separately. But HRT is, I guess, hormonal supplementation for women who are going through perimenopause or have experienced menopause entirely and that their periods have stopped. But of course, there's a phase of maybe be up to five, six, seven years before a woman has her final period where she's going through perimenopause and I'm in it right now in my mid-40s where, you know, some months it's all, you know, like clockwork and then you might skip a period or your hormones will be going up and down. And one of the most common symptoms of that is that kind of classic hot flash, hot flush or night sweats where you kind of get the surge through your body and you get all it's so hot or, you know, you start sweating at night. And we know that that's the most kind of reliable symptom of this point in the lifespan. Now, especially if you're getting night sweats at night, it has a huge impact on your sleep. And so if you're not sleeping properly, then we know that that's quite serious knock-on effects for your emotional self. So what's there's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario here. We know that when women are going through this point in the lifespan, it's another one of these transitions we're, you know, we're vulnerable to developing emotional problems. But there's a whole lot more going on than just hormones, of course. If hormones are causing uh, night sweats, which are causing you not to sleep properly, then you're going to be far more emotionally vulnerable. You're also, it's a real point in the lifespan where you start, you know, kind of thinking about aging, you're thinking about your body changing, you're thinking about, you know, this glorification that we have of youth you know the world of biohacking that kind of world you're immersed in is obsessed with you know I don't think you'll think you're going to live forever but you know longevity and staying as healthy as possible for as long as possible is our health span going to match our lifespan it's a really big psycho social emotional shift in your life so there's a lot of things kind of going on bottom up outside and then top down you probably if you have kids they're probably somewhere in their teenage years not always, but often. So you kind of, you know, you're dealing with these huge emotional shifts of your young people who may be going into high school and dealing with teenage life. And often a lot of us are at the peak of our careers. So there's a lot going on besides just the emotional shift. So one way that many women may choose to deal with this, and certainly we know the the very best treatment for hot flashes and night sweats and perhaps the knock-on effects that they may have is hormone replacement therapy. And it's certainly something that I have chosen, not HRT because I'm, I haven't gone through menopause yet, but I've gone back on the oral contraceptive pill and I'm just taking that constantly because I was awake five times a night, drenching in sweat or freezing cold because it was in winter and quite frankly couldn't be bothered dealing with that. My lifestyle is good enough. I felt like any improvements I could make would be so marginal it wasn't going to help with these hormonal fluctuations so we just went back on the oral contraceptive pill hot flashes went away and I'm kind of just carrying on with life now without having (laughs) all of that kind of burden behind me it didn't really affect me emotionally but I was sick and tired of not sleeping at night now there's so many people so scared about 
HRT and it took a really, really, really bad rap back at kind of the the turn of the century, 2002, 2003, when there were a few enormous women's health studies being done globally looking at HRT and it turned out that the report started coming in of quite high rates of women developing heart disease and cancers and various other health issues related to the hormone replacement therapy. And perhaps half to two-thirds of the women globally who were on HRT stopped almost immediately. Now, what's been really interesting in the sort of the 15 years or so since those studies have been come out, we've gone back and we've been able to take a really, really careful look at the data. And it turns out that a lot of the women who were entered in that study, over half of the women who were entered into these clinical trials of HRT were many, many, many years beyond menopause. Some of the women were in their 60s or even 70s, so they could have been 10, 15 or 20 years after menopause, were entered into the studies and then they had hormones reintroduced into a body that had weaned off it. And what we understand now is that if hormones are reintroduced into a body that's, and I'm just using the word weaned off estrogen as a way of kind of describing what happens after menopause, that is what causes the problems. And it was in those women that we were seeing these increased rates of problems. When women were started on hormone replacement therapy, either right around the time of their last menopause, if they were symptomatic, or in that kind of perimenopausal window, we're not seeing any increase in rates of any of these, you know, heart disease, cancers, et cetera, et cetera. And we think that in many cases it may be incredibly protective for women's health, in particular around bone health, um, heart health, and it certainly has a huge impact on things like hot flashes, which may cause women to not sleep properly and can cause a whole lot of emotional issues if they don't feel like they can kind of maybe manage themselves in the workplace well. So in a lot of these studies around this kind of window of opportunity of hormone replacement therapy have been verified in a lot of animal studies whereby, you know, we see in a lot of animals that if they go through, well, almost all mammals except for humans and some species of whale, when you go through menopause, you don't live maybe a month or two and then you kind of, you die. Whereas if animals are given these hormone replacements, not only do they live longer, but they live healthier. Whereas if it's reintroduced into the system that is weaned off it, that's what causes the increase. So I think, again, there's a very, very strong and fearful social narrative around HRT causing issues, having negative effects on people's health. And it is very, very hard for people who work in kind of science and health communications. Once people have got scared of something, we've seen this with these, you know, anti-vaxxers, you know, it's very, very hard to wind back fear you know, with re-educating with information is a very, very, very hard thing to do in the face of fear. But certainly the most recent evidence that we have around HRT and in terms of the impact that it has on our brains, we're not entirely sure how hormones are working in the brain to kind of reset that thermostat, but we understand that there's a bit of a thermostat in our brain in a region called the hypothalamus. And when we enter and it's and it must be regulated by hormones we believe because when we enter menopause it seems to get a whole lot narrower so when you even get slightly hot pre-menopause you would just get slightly hot after menopause your body thinks you know you've gained two or three degrees and so you have these huge kind of sweats and you want to throw your clothes off so that thermostat gets a lot narrower after menopause but if you put the hormones back in before the menopause and the thermostat doesn't narrow down and that's why you see the relief from a lot of these kind of thermoregulatory issues.
So it seems, I mean, this is completely fascinating. It seems like so many of the issues women seem to experience hormonally really do have this, it's because of a cultural perspective of it or anticipation of of what's going to happen based on what we've been told. I'm fascinated by what you were saying about how it's hard to unlearn, you know, a fear surrounding something. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really, really hard. And I mean, I mean, I use anti-vax as an example of there's so much fear there that something negative will happen, that it's hard. You can't re-educate people with that information. We only have to look. I don't know whether you have heard what's happening in Samoa recently. They had a measles epidemic. We've had over 60 children. This is a small Pacific island just off the coast of New Zealand. We've had 60 children die there because they did not have herd immunity because they only had about 40% of people in the community vaccinated because they had a real strong anti-vax narrative there. Now people think measles isn't a big deal. Well, 60 kids have died there in the last month. The public health authorities were up against kind of re-educating this population not to be scared, but they will refuse the vaccination and look what's happened now and that's going to happen again. Whereas in other islands such as Fiji or Tonga where they had very, very high rates of vaccination, the measles epidemic hasn't taken hold and the kids are doing fine. So Samoa is, right, I mean, it's, what are we, December 2019 now, right in the middle of that kind of thing. And, and re-educating populations of people when we have these very, very strong stories that are often counter to the science is very difficult. And, you know, I've worked for many years as a science communicator. You know, sometimes the best way to change someone's thought is through a feeling. And often sometimes the best way to change someone's feeling is by educating them with a bit of thought, but it's much harder to go that way. People's emotions do tend to rule their decision-making, even in the face of (laughs) so much evidence and information otherwise. So it's a real challenge, but I think it's kind of interesting intellectually that problem in its own way. And I suppose for me, writing the book was just totally fascinating when I kept coming across story upon story upon story like this where you know, and, and we haven't talked about pregnancy in those postnatal years, that similarly hormones play a huge role in that. But women are far more likely to develop depression after they've had the children. The, the older their children get, they're far more likely to have depression when the children are three or four than in those first few postnatal weeks. So the hormones are over and done with by then. It's around the expectations of motherhood and just the daily grind of raising children and this kind of develop this new sense of self which must emerge and develop much like adolescence a sense of motherhood which must kind of develop our expectations around that and that is a much stronger influence over women's emotional stories than just these hormones they are what just one voice in the crowd yeah i mean it makes me think even more and more i mean looking at the longest lived populations or, you know, trends with longevity that we want to always attribute it to like diet or, you know, something that they're eating or not eating when really it seems to be more about, you know, the social connection, the sense of purpose. What I love in your book, you talked about, I don't know how you say her name. The French lady, Jeanne Calmon. I love the quote that you had from her. This might've been the final quote of your, or how your book ended, but she was talking about her secret to longevity. And she was saying, always keep your sense of humor. That's what I attribute my long life to. I think I'll die laughing. That's part of my program. We can take health and well-being so seriously. And it's like removes all of the joy out of living sometimes. Just for everyone who's listening, Jeanne Calmon was born in 1875 in France and she died in September 1997. Just for context, the same month Princess Diana did. So she was something like 123 or 24 years old when she died. She has the Guinness World Record for that. Now, there is a little bit of controversy, as there always is, around was she actually her daughter faking 
to be super old or something, but that's just a bit of a conspiracy theory. But she had an incredibly enriched intellectual life, social life, and she was physically very healthy. Now, she clearly had biological predisposition for a long life because she had a brother who lived into his late 90s. And she lived by herself. She outlived her husband and her child who both died of accidents and one of food poisoning, I believe. She lived in a a second story walk-up apartment until she was 107 when she went into aged care. So she was walking up and down those stairs as well. So, I mean, keeping physically fit and healthy and having a good diet, of course, is incredibly important. But I think we can have such this nowadays, this tendency to kind of you know, health and well-being has become so self-centered. And so there's this strong sense of the answers inside. And if you just eat the right food and look inwards for all of the answers, then you'll you'll live forever. And and it all seems to be a lot about manipulating your biology. And in doing that, we're kind of disconnecting ourselves from nature, the world around us. We evolved as we are wild creatures and the tribes of people that we evolved to be part of as well. And I think that, you know, the self-help movement and the wellbeing movement has done some good things, but in some ways I think it's done a bit of damage because it's disconnected us from certainly what we understand in neuroscience, what our brains evolved for, and that is connections with other people, our social context and, you know, being getting a bit more back into nature is so, so important. Yeah, I could not agree more. And this may seem ironic coming from me because I have the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast, but (laughs) I'm starting to just realize and come to exactly these thoughts that you're having right now, because I personally experienced, you know, certain health conditions and health issues. And something I keep saying a lot recently is I feel like if I could just forget everything I knew and everything, if I could just forget, you know, all of these ideas about what I think is happening or what causes water, all of this biohacking stuff, I think certain things I've been struggling with would most likely, I mean, I don't know this, but I feel like they could be gone tomorrow. Yeah. These narratives that we have in these stories, we tell ourselves we can powerfully, and people are very, very happy with this idea of having power, you know, our good thoughts can help us live healthier and happier lives. But We need to remember that all of our thoughts and all of the stories that we're telling ourselves can impact on our health in both positive and negative ways. So we can't just pick and choose which ones kind of work, (laughs) which ones kind of, you know, support our philosophies or or, or whatever. And I do, I do think that, and I'm not against the mindfulness and meditation movement, but one, I've never really gained much success from it. It's a skill I've tried to learn and quite frankly can't be bothered because it doesn't do much for me and I think it's a bit boring. I would rather take my dog for a walk or go to the gym or swim in the ocean or read a book if I'm wanting to, and I have no problems training my attention, but as a way of stress relief or a way of gaining self-awareness or a way of switching my mind off because I, I really feel like those are such, such isolating activities and they just there's so much navel gazing involved and so much kind of like the answers are and you know completely fails to address the world that we live in you know the culture the society we live in the families we live in we're completely embedded our stories are not one of me they are one of we and you know you think about all of the important wonderful parts of your life or good memories you have they're always about other people they're not the times that you spent navel gazing or that you know the times that you ate the right food or did whatever supplement or whatever what's the cream you put in your coffee you know that's not the stuff that's I think we just take all that stuff far too seriously and we've completely lost touch and disconnected from 
what our brains need and we need to be teaching this next generation of young people coming through and I'm so aware of that now you know with my boys kind of you know late childhood kind of on the cusp of adolescence you know what I want them to be thinking is important and what's going to be the best ways I can protect their you know their physical health most importantly their mental health and it's not by teaching them how to meditate and you know, seek the right answers within, but to have a good, strong tribe of mates, you know, that they can just enjoy life with and they can, you know, head off into the surf with their surfboards or out on their bikes and, you know, roam through the bush and just kind of be little humans (laughs) in the world instead of isolating themselves off and, you know, sitting in some zen position and thinking that that's where the answers lie. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me 
Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands. And it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, 
and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. Well, I guess as a follow-up to that, because I do think with meditation that there is this concept that, I mean, I guess I think it also gets stereotyped as well, that it, you know, is this thing where you have to have no thoughts and be completely silent and, you know, that it's like this thing that has to be done a certain way. But I think for people who are struggling to reach that state where they can't let go of things, because I mean, I think what arguably what you do, we're talking about, you know, going on the beach, taking the dog for the walk or being with the kids in a way that could almost be quote meditation. And just in the fact that it's, achieving you know a state in yeah. your brain you just where- don't need to do it you don't need to do a course <laughs> to learn how to yeah. and I nap most days as well and that's my kind of I'm a strategic napper most afternoons if I get a bit sleepy and I work for myself so I can you know I'm not out somewhere but I have been known to nap in the car I get sleepy I crave having a, a nap and so I'll just kind of indulge myself and let it happen. And I don't need to kind of learn how to do that. And I guess my struggle, which many people struggle, has been if they're learning some type of mindfulness meditation. And I know the ev- evangelists will come after me and tell me I've got my theories wrong or whatever, but I really don't care. There's other things that I do instead that achieve the same goal, which for me aren't as hard to do. And I haven't had to pay someone to figure out you know, I'll still like, you know, listen to my breath every now and then if I need a bit of kind of a, a quick first aid calm down. But I guess part of my problem is that it's, very, again, it's, it's quite isolating. You have to kind of be 
align. <laughs> and, and I don't necessarily think that that's, you know, I prefer a social prescription. Having a laugh with friends for me is just as, as useful, if not way more so and way more fun. And not as taken as seriously, you know. It's all, I, I guess for me, there's a lot of I don't understand the, the seriousness of, with which people approach their health and well-being because it seems to have removed a bit of the, the the kind of the freedom and the joy from just you know living a good life. Yeah, I guess in the end, the goal, if we're to use that word, goal of any of these practices is to, you know, reach exactly what you're talking about, engaging in life and experiencing the moment and not having the emotional attachment to the identity of the worry thoughts or the stress thoughts or, you know, things like that. So I think, I feel like that regardless of the practice and whether or not it does work for somebody or doesn't work for somebody, I feel like maybe in the end, the end goal might be the same. It just as far as going back to the natural experiencing self. I like how my cocker spaniel experiences life. And a bit like you say, you know, sometimes I wonder if we know too much and we've kind of overthought all of this stuff. And, you know, the planet's probably going to explode in 10 more years anyway. So better make sure we make the most of it. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that glass of wine and I'm going to read the trashy magazine and I'm probably not going to meditate probably going to live a long time and I'm being completely serious. My genes are terrible. My genes are terrible and I'm not I'm not genetically determinist, but you know, it's probably about 70, 30, but my, my genetic baseline is pretty low. I don't know your mindset. I need to work harder at my, my health. For example, my husband, everyone in his family lives until their like late nineties. His parents are hale and hearty in their eighties and mine are practically dead in their late sixties. Did they have your approach, like your mentality though? Uh, no. <laughs> see, see, that could be the... Yeah, but my mother has gone through an awful lot of trauma because she's lived in Christchurch and they've had a lot of stuff go on there in the last decade with earthquakes and that terrible massacre they had in the mosques earlier this year and, and my sister has as well. They've had a lot of... Life has thrown a lot of crap their way and I have just been so fortunate that that hasn't happened to me. So, you know, again, it's not just my mindset, it's my life experiences that I've just been incredibly fortunate to have sidestepped a lot of the trauma that they have had to deal with. So again, you know, I could tell I have a great mindset, but I've also been incredibly fortunate to have not faced any real difficulties. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty careful with attributing, you know, my great fortune in life and my attitude to, you know... Some of it's just pure luck, right? But, you know, life has been very, very kind to me. I may not have necessarily always deserved that. And that's why I kind of think, gosh, well, I've seen some pretty horrible things happen to a lot of people that I know well and love. And so I don't want to take it all too seriously because it's too short, too short to do that. Yeah. If I can even share a vulnerable moment for myself. I mean, I really relate to what you're saying because I feel like my life up until pretty recently, very similar, like very, very blessed in my life experience, nothing really intensely traumatic or anything like that until I experienced some health issues actually, which turned a little bit chronic. But it's so interesting to me because, and this kind of ties into the whole cultural narrative of things, because before that I never really felt the need for like should I try meditation or should I, because I was just happy in the moment. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't need any of these things because life is great and I can experience things. It wasn't until I started experiencing some chronic health issues and then 
from that, like anxiety and ruminations from that, that I started feeling the need to search out these modalities to return my brain or, you know, detach from these, these ideas. Sort of step back from your own thoughts, I think is such a useful, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what's fascinating though, is that, you know, I'll work with therapists and stuff and people, they'll often ask, oh, did you have, you know, any, any trauma growing up, you know, any, you know, life experience? And I'm like, no, not really. And they'll be like, did you have, you know, any of this growing up? And the assumption is that I must have, and I must have, I've got to find it. Like it's got to be there somewhere. And I'm like, honestly, it's not. (laughs) Um, And I'm not sure what the benefit is of trying to, you know, even create a narrative of that. But I think the wonderful thing is understanding the neuroplasticity of the brain. And despite the fact that, you know, we might have these stressors or these, you know, anxieties or these experiences that we interpret as, you know, being one thing that like you've said all along that there's so much of a a cultural aspect to it. There's our own perspective of it. There's what we think it means when really we just, you know, don't even barely know. One of the things I love that you said in your book, you were talking about how cortisol, for example, like the stress hormone that we often see that as really, really, you know, a negative and a bad thing, but you mentioned how it's actually protective in the moment during stressful events and that reduced cortisol release during a stressful event would could actually lead to increased, I think, anxiety or something afterwards. Yeah, we can call it the Goldilocks hormone, you know, not too little, not too much. You need just the right amount. And certainly we know that women experience a stressful event on average, not every woman and not every man, but on average, women are far more likely to go on to experience maybe some type of post-traumatic symptoms, not disorders, but symptoms versus men on average. And part of that may be that our stress hormone systems and our reproductive hormone systems do interact. But what we see is that men have a much larger cortisol response to a stressful event in the moment than women do on average. And that cortisol response does appear to kind of be protective for the ongoing development and kind of almost give you the means to cope with the stressful event in the time versus what we may see in women. But of course, we must remember whenever we talk about any kind of hormone or neurotransmitter or chemical in the body, it's not just the chemical itself, but we also need receptors. It's like, you know, a key is meaningless unless there's a lock in which it can turn or unlock. So, you know, our life experiences, our our genes, our, um, you know, both nature and nurture together can influence, you know, the expression of receptors, which you know, are kind of the the lock to which the, the cortisol or other hormones or, or neurotransmitters unlock. So it's a whole lot more complicated, the human body and the human mind, than simply hormone, you know, behavior experience. And I perhaps have been incredibly clumsy and maybe slightly ranty with explaining that. But, I, I if, you know, people could take away one idea, it would be, perhaps that, that we just need to take a bit more of a sort of a nuanced approach to voices in the crowd are and more often than not it's the voices of the other people around us that are the loudest. I love it. I love it. Do you mind talking about how the brain does change during pregnancy? Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite pieces of research that came out while I was writing the book and I'm so thankful to the researchers for publishing it when they did. So in this study, they were using MRI, which is 
a brain scan looking at the structure. So if MRI looks, it's kind of like takes a movie of the brain in action. This is looking at the structure of women's brains before and after their first pregnancy. So they had a whole heap of couples who were trying to get pregnant. I'm sure they had a great time doing this experiment. About half of them fell pregnant within the kind of the window that they required them to. Before they'd all fallen pregnant, their brains were scanned. So we had a good idea of the structure of their brains. And then within a month or so after the, the baby was born, and they did the women's and they also did the men's. They did the partners as kind of an internal control. And it was fascinating because in all of the women, exactly the same part of the brain changed structure. And this is kind of, you know, fits in so neatly with what I've just been saying. And it got thinner, very similarly to how we might see the prefrontal cortex, grey matter, and teenagers getting thinner. It got streamlined or it find its connections. And it was the same region in all of the women. And it was a part of the brain involved and social cognition, and theory of mind, and empathy, the ability to read other people's thoughts and feelings. So maybe the thoughts and feelings and being able to respond to the baby, but also that kind of, you know, that tribe, that network of people we need around us. And it's interesting because the question is, well, was it the experience of parenting within that first month or so after the baby was born? But the, the father's were also part of the study and and they and they were very involved. This was done in the Netherlands and men over there are very involved with family life and their brains showed absolutely no structural change. So in this case, we assume it must be the biochemical and hormonal changes that take place during pregnancy. Now, when we go through a, a pregnancy, we have about a thousand-fold increase in levels of estrogen, which is we get more in one pregnancy than you get the entire rest of your lifespan. And every other mammal in the animal kingdom Estrogen is a cognitive enhancer. It makes us smarter and sharper and better at what we do. But of course, what do we have a cultural narrative around baby brain and becoming dumber and dopier? Well, we just look to our New Zealand Prime Minister to counter that argument. Animals, I say, they don't read books on what to expect or on what they're expecting. And so what we're seeing is these these kind of hormones, this biochemical change that takes place in pregnancy, not just gets your body in a state to carry a baby and then to give birth to that baby and nurture that baby. But it also seems to, in much the same way it does in all mammals, alters the brain structure such that we've got a bit of a shortcut to motherhood, so it kind of primes our brains for the act of motherhood. Of course, it's not a guarantee that that will be the case in every in every woman, but certainly this is the greatest structural change we see taking place in, in women's brains at any point in the lifespan beyond adolescence. So again... It was a part of the brain involved with other people. <laughs> in this case, hormones did change the brain, but it changed the brain that's involved with social connection. So fascinating. And then are there any changes in the brain during menopause? That hasn't, interestingly, that has not been looked at in any great detail. So we understand a little bit, I said, about the parts of the brain involved with thermoregulation and there's some kind of narrowing of the thermostat, but we don't see any great structural with significant changes taking place there. But what we do see after women go through menopause, if they don't choose to then have hormone replacement therapies, we do see there's greater vulnerability to go on to develop some of the diseases of ageing. Women who have had children appear to be slightly more protected against brain ageing and some of the dementias, probably because of, you know, maybe it's to do with all of the hormones of pregnancy and breastfeeding, but also because raising children is quite cognitively demanding. So it's a bit like a kind of a computer game. You're always kind of up-leveling. So it may be that there's lots of nature, nurture, biological, psychosocial aspects 
after menopause, women do start to experience brain changes, but some of your reproductive history does appear to be protective or not against that. But certainly right around that point in time, we don't see any significant structural changes taking place. Gotcha. Well, this has been, I mean, this is so many paradigm shifts here. So for for stepping away from all that we've discussed and the practical implementation of this. So for women who, and I keep, I guess, bringing this up, but women who feel like they're experiencing hormonal changes that they're finding either unpleasant or maybe that they're enjoying either way. Hormones can have lots of positive effect as well. Like, you know, that's what kind of gets you excited in the middle of your your menstrual cycle and, you know, makes you want to make babies and things like that. So, you know, we, let's just not think that they just do bad stuff, hormones. Oh, true. Because that is a whole other section in your book, that the love section and reproduction and the sexual experience and orgasm and all of that. Do we see that affecting the brain or is that all just an, an experience? I think orgasm is, I like to say, it's the ultimate bottom up, outside in, top down experience because you've got biological Often there's someone else involved, not always. And, you know, then there's your thoughts and your feelings and your previous life experiences all going to impact on that experience, you know, that you have. So fascinating. And then also something you talked about was the role of daydreaming, for example. <gasps> daydreaming. Oh, gosh, that's another whole, <laughs> another how many, how many hours like more have we got? Daydreaming is fascinating. So there's this network in the brain called the default mode network, and we only just sort of figured it out recently, and it came about thanks to brain imaging technology whereby when you do fMRI, so functional magnetic resonance imaging, so you're just kind of looking at changes in levels of activity in the brain, and you can do it and get people to do a whole host of physical or cognitive activities where you're taking a look at what their brain does while it's doing its thing. And what people started, researchers started noticing was when in between the experiments, when people were just kind of lying on the brain scanner doing nothing, they'll be like, we're going to set this up. You've got, we'll start in 10 minutes, just lie there until then, try not to move. And people just kind of sit there and they've got nothing to do except kind of daydream. And it turned out that there was this this network in the brain that we call the default mode network, which sort of started, for want of better language, lighting up. We started seeing activation in this default mode network and people doing nothing. And it turns out that this we've got these different networks, different kind of nodes in the brain, which, you know, we've got the executive function network, which is involved with sort of thinking and planning and making decisions when you're kind of very cognitively on task. And then we've got other parts of the brain which you may be thinking about what's happening in your body. And then there's this part of the brain which kind of does daydreaming. And, you know, it's where you tell your little stories to yourself, where you remember a conversation you had or you plan the future. And it's not really always kind of in the It's not in the moment. It's not in the moment at all. It's daydreaming. What is really interesting is when we look at older people who have certain types of dementia, in particular frontal temporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease, which are two different types of dementia, the default mode network sort of starts to break down. And it's one of the first sort of functional networks in the brain that we start seeing break down in these disease states. And this fascinating study is done by a friend of mine here in Sydney called Marin Irish. She's a professor of, of neuroscience at University of New South Wales. And she wasn't doing this. We were very aware of the default mode network and this idea that people have to kind of tell themselves stories and to kind of drift away and use their imagination when they're not really on task. So she'd sit people in front of a computer screen. She had young, healthy people and then people with dementia, and she'd just present 
shapes, coloured shapes in front of a totally boring task. So there might be a red square and a green circle and then a yellow triangle. And then she'd go and tap them on the shoulder and ask them what they were thinking about at various points in time. And a young, healthy person, so as she tells the story, they might be looking at a yellow triangle and the person would go, oh, and she'd go, what are you thinking about? And they said, oh, well, I was thinking that, that shade of yellow, it was a really unusual shade of yellow. And it kind of reminded me of this beach in Greece where I went. And when I was there, I had this fantastic meal. We had this fish and then that reminded me that I was going to cook fish for dinner tonight. So now I was trying to figure out whether I'd have time to go to the supermarket on the way home. And this is the kind of the typical story that people would start <laughs> repeating back to her, that kind of cha- this stream of consciousness that we all have when we're not really, when we're bored or when we're thinking about other things. What was interesting was when she went and asked the people with dementia, she tapped them on the shoulder and go, what are you thinking of? And they go, well, that's a nice yellow triangle. We tend to think that the, that people with dementia have lost their memories of the past, but they've also completely lost the ability to daydream, to imagine, to think about the future and to kind of tell themselves those little stories to keep themselves entertained. They, and I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, perhaps they've achieved ultimate mindfulness, and that they become completely embedded in the moment. And they've lost that kind of beautiful ability that we have to go into that default mode and tell ourselves stories to keep ourselves entertained. So I don't think we should dismiss daydreaming. I think it's a it's a fundamental part of, you know, a healthy brain. One last question that kind of speaks to that as well. You know, speaking of what is a, you know, with daydreaming, like what is a healthy amount of that or any sort of mental experience that we have, what is a healthy amount of that? So things like quote, mental issues or, you know, depression or anxiety? Do you think these are natural states that the brain enters or are they? I don't know. I I think depression is a tricky one because, you know, we use this umbrella word to mean to, to cover off so many, as I would say, shades of blue. And there are a lot of shades of blue that we could be, you know, we could just have had a pretty a couple of pretty bad nights sleep and so we feel a bit low mood we just need a good night's sleep and a good healthy meal to perk us back up perhaps we're reacting to a disappointment you've lost a job you failed an exam perhaps you're deep into grief you've lost someone that you love perhaps you have you know lost sense of purpose in life perhaps you are suffering hormonal withdrawal in those first few weeks after you've had a baby and your body's kind of recalibrating and you're questioning who you are as a woman with this new baby in your arms that you don't know what to do with so you know i think there's as many shades of blue and as many causes of shades of blue as perhaps there are people in, in their life experiences. So whether we can say that this is one kind of depressed state that we all end up in, it's not an ideal state to be in. And so perhaps there's many reasons why one ends up there. And I always like to say, you know, as there are many shades of blue, there are as many approaches to kind of pull yourself up out of that or give someone a hand up out of that. And whether that be taking a bottom-up biological approach, you know, are you, are you going to, we have such great evidence for exercise and moving your body is a great treatment for people with the kind of the lighter shades of blue, I should say. I mean, you know, sleep, eat, move, the, the kind of the ba- getting your basic biology on track. Are you, you know, you socially supported and connected as I've gone on and on about? That's one of the greatest influences on our emotional state. You know, do you feel connected with the outside world? Do you feel highly disconnected from it? Are you really lonely and isolated? And, you know, feeling isolated is is the first step to a deep loneliness, which puts us in a naturally depressed state because we're social creatures. Or perhaps, you know, you need to approach, you know, 
challenging perhaps negative thought patterns. Perhaps that's, you know, you go down the field of psychotherapy and then perhaps you've got people who are in an incredibly deep shade of blue who do need, whether they need pharmacological therapy, whether they need some kind of, and I know electroshock therapy is controversial, electroconvulsive therapy is very, very controversial for some people, but still it is a pretty good treatment for some people with very severe treatment-resistant depression. It lifts them up out of it for long enough to be able to kind of get them, their lives back on track. So like I say, I, don't, I think we use this word depression to describe the set of symptoms for which there could be many, many, many reasons that someone is is there and could be just something light and passing. I think it's a pretty normal state for lots of us to enter at different points in our lifespan. I know there's a really well-known study that's come out of New Zealand called the Dunedin Longitudinal Study that has looked at people all the way through the lifespan. Um, they've, they've studied about a 1,000 people who were born in the mid-70s in Dunedin, New Zealand, and they've studied them every few years, every aspect of their lives. And up into midlife, this, this study has found that about sort of, I think it was something like 73% of people have had some mental health, using that umbrella, diagnosable mental health condition at some point in their lifespan. There's very there's perhaps about one in five people have got up into midlife completely unscathed emotionally. So I think it's probably quite normal to experience depression, for want of a better word. The reasons why and how we kind of recover from that are as varied as people, I think. So like with everything we've been talking about in this episode, that seems like so much of our experience of life is really about the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we're told from society and what we what we take from that. I interviewed so many amazing researchers and people working within health and childcare, you know, early childhood education and working with teenagers and working with new mums and working with people and um, who are older researchers, doctors, women's health experts, and every single one of them will talk about, you know, we've got these windows of opportunity and vulnerability. And the greatest thing that we can do for any person in any kind of vulnerable point in time is just to put, you know, build grey matter infrastructure. What is that? It must be built up out of other people. And sometimes it can just take the love or the hand of just one other person. And that connection, it doesn't matter whether it's a little baby who fundamentally needs human touch. It doesn't matter whether it's a vulnerable teenager whether it's a, a new mum, whether it's a woman going through menopause, she needs her, woman, her, her, her girlfriends around her, whether it's someone old like Jean Calmon in the aged care home. How many people, you know, get no visitors when they move into aged care? About half of people never see a visitor every week. So people are, you know, the absolute key. There's this really famous Maori proverb in New Zealand that we say. The kind of question is, ha'aha te manui o te and it's, what is the most important thing? And the answer is hatangata, hatangata, hatangata. And it is the people, the people, the people. And I think when I was writing my book, I went into it with quite a naive assumption it was going to be this nature nurture type book and it was going to be about our biology and it was going to be the biology of women and hormones and health and how that affects our brain and it ended up being not that at all. I thought that was what the book was going to be about but for me it was a real lesson in, as I say, what is the most important thing and it was it's the people. I love that. Now it all makes sense why the book, the conclusion, not the, well, the, the final chapter, you know, does tap into this idea of, you know, the longest lived people and the themes there. And, you know, it seems to, you know, up until that point, it's been, you know, a large focus on women's brain specifically, but 
you know, in the end, it does seem to be about, you know, the social context and the purpose. And I love just, I love that final ending that you have with, um, that we talked about with Jean or what, what is her name? Jean Calmont. Yeah. Well, this is super appropriate. So the last question I ask every single expert on this podcast, and it's because I have realized how much our perspective of things influences everything. Yeah. Expectations of health is such an important, you know, ingredient. Yeah. So like all biohacking aside, one thing I find to be super, super helpful with everything as far as health, body, life, everything is a sense of gratitude. So mm. what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, I was thinking, I'd like to say my dog because <laughs> he's just gorgeous. Look, I think I was so fortunate to be born in the country I was born into and to the family I was born in. And I had the happiest childhood and so did my husband. He was born in Ireland and had the happiest childhood. And we both grew up in these wonderful families and we found each other. And I think he has been the the greatest influence, apart from my mum, has been the greatest influence in, in my life. And I've been with him for 20 years. And, you know, they say you, you, who you marry is, you know, the greatest influence on, on life. And he, he is just such a good bloke. I am so fortunate that I found him. And so today I am grateful for my husband. I love that so much. And my dog. <laughs> it's very interesting. I was going to say, I've found, because I've asked this question to every guest on this podcast, and a trend that I've noticed is people that very much have this mindset similar to yours of, I don't really know how to say this, basically people who seem to be living in a sense of gratitude a lot, when I ask the question, their first response is typically something that's right there because they can like very quickly, they'll be like, oh, my dog, rather than you know, having to think of like the one, the one big thing from like all of life. I feel like some people can just naturally gravitate. Oh, I'm grateful for, you know, this pair of scissors right now. Like, I feel like it could be so beneficial to just be grateful for all the little things all the time, you know? So I love that you're grateful for your dog and, and your husband. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he's definitely number one. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, speaking of, thank you so much, Sarah. This has been absolutely wonderful. Your book is just absolutely amazing. I cannot recommend listeners enough to check it out. I'm so grateful for your work, your perspective. I think it's it's so, admittedly, I don't know much about your field as far as like how much is studied by different <laughs> neuroscientists and stuff. Very broad and very deep, I say. And we don't really know much at all. And, and perhaps I'm completely wrong about most of it, but it's a very... It's, it's, it's an incredible field to have been part of because if you love learning new stuff, there is always something new going on. So yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal place to have spent my career. And I am super grateful, Sarah, because you are offering something to our listeners. So would you like to tell listeners a little bit about that? I have a toolkit, which is kind of like my hand-picked tools and strategies that'll give people a bit of a head start on basic understanding of brain science and, and how they can use it and deploy that in their lives. So they can go to my current website, which is www.yourbrainhealth.com.au forward slash toolkit. And they'll be able to download Brain Toolkit, which is just kind of like my handpicked tools on how to use neuroscience wisely. Awesome. So for listeners, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. The show notes for this episode, by the way, will be at melanieavalon.com slash women's brain. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been 
absolutely amazing. Like I said, so grateful for your work. I cannot recommend people enough to check out this book because there is, I mean, I know we talked a long time, but we only barely even not even remotely scratched oh, the no, surface. Oh, no, we haven't so. did any of the chapters. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to just talk about this stuff because it has been, it is one of the greatest joys in my life has been, you know, I just dig into the science and I get to tell everyone all about it and I just, and I just, that's just kind of my happy place. So thank you for giving, you know, creating a little place in which I can just talk. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I'd love to bring you back on in the future and we can dive deep into some more oh, things. Yeah, there's, there's so many things we haven't even touched so on So much out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So listeners will have to stay tuned for a part two in the future. Thank you so much. And I will definitely, definitely talk to you soon. See you later. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine? Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.